Okay, so we are wrapping up this series called BLESS, and we've been using it as an acronym to understand sort of a five-fold process of, of beginning to sort of, in some way, share and, um, and put our faith into uh, opportunities for conversation with people. And we started off by talking about how this is a very awkward thing for us as people of faith. It's a very difficult thing to sort of bring up and talk about, and it's quite intimidating, honestly, to talk about our faith with people with whom uh, they, they may disagree or um, in some way not really be interested. And so we started with this idea of, of really being a blessing to people and serving people and looking for ways to uh, complement their lives in a way that uh, might open them up to, to who God is. And then we talked about listening with care and sort of uh, listening to what is going on in their lives and what's, what's happening in, in, in their lives. And then eating together, we talked about last week, inviting people to sort of enter our homes, become part of our lives, have a meal together, and then serving uh, each other or serving uh, the people that we are attempting to share our faith with. And beginning from a place of real relationship is basically uh, kind of how this is all put together. And today we sort of wrap up with the last S in talking about sharing our story. And now this is the most powerful part. If, if in the beginning with the, the first four kind of pro, first four parts of the process, it's really more listening. It's more sort of um, being in relationship with another person and investing, and, and then looking for an opportunity finally to sort of share your story. And so we're going to talk about that. But, but the point is, is that because this is so intimidating, we really make sharing our faith or evangelism or outreach or whatever term you would connect to this, we really make it a harder, more difficult situation than what it is. And, and it's really awkward for us. It's awkward for the people that we're attempting to, to share the good news of who Jesus is. It really is just a very difficult thing because I think we pile it on ourselves and we make it into a bigger thing than really what it is. And how we do that is we think, we start from a place, tell me if I'm wrong, but we start from a place where it's our responsibility. And we start from a place where we have to have all the right answers. I remember gathering in my small group a couple of weeks ago as we talked about this series, and it was good dialogue within our small group. It came up over and over again. People said, I feel like I don't have the right answers. I feel like I can't answer people's questions. And, and sort of the dialogue went down a path of, well, why do we have to? They start bringing things in like, uh, you know, how old the earth is or how far outer space is or all these other sort of uh, arguments that, that God doesn't exist, or how, how does God exist within uh, the confines of these different things science is finding out, and, and we feel like we're, we're kind of inept at really answering those, those bigger, apologetic, challenging questions. But here, here's the question. Nowhere in any of this material do you see preparation for that. And so I wonder, I wonder if what is going on where we feel like we have to have the answers? Why do we feel like we have to engage in some sort of debate? Because the, the amazing part about sharing your story is that nobody can debate your story. Nobody can argue with you and say, no, your story doesn't exist. That can't be your experience. We live in an incredibly experience-rich culture. If there's anything our culture values and upholds as being incredibly valuable and, and truth, it's somebody's experience. And so... When it comes to this, what we're going to talk about today is incredibly, incredibly relevant for you sharing your faith with your family, with your friends, with people that you're in relationship with, your neighbors, your coworkers, people that you recreate with, the people that you really have a burden for. This is really incredibly relevant because it cannot be argued away. 
We can debate science. We can debate creation versus evolution. You can get at all that stuff. Why do we have to have answers for it? What you do have is an answer for your life out of your experience. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. We're going to, we're going to sort of shape that. But one of the reasons that we get so kind of, I think, uptight about this is not only do we feel like we have to have all the answers, but we fail to see and we fail to understand, we looked at this two weeks ago, that God is actually at work among us in the lives of the people that we love, the people that we would hope to share our faith with. So if you have a grandson or a granddaughter or a son or a daughter or a sister or a brother or mom or dad or whatever the relationship is, a neighbor, somebody that you really care about and you're very burdened over that they are in no way following or coming to a realization of who Jesus is in their lives, know this and take hope from this. And I just want to remind you about this, what we talked about two weeks ago. And that is that God is more heartbroken over that person than you could ever be for them. And that God is more passionate and loves that individual in your life more than you could ever love or want for them what he wants for them. And if we start from that place that God is in some way attempting to break into their lives in a way that you and I wish we could for them, then what happens is we get invited then to step into what God is already up to in the life of that person. But when we start from a place that sharing our faith is completely up to us, and the difference in this person's life is completely dependent upon us saying the right things and doing the right things and all of that, we tend to think we are 99% of the solution and that God is somehow going to interject right at the right moment with his 1% when in actuality the whole thing is flipped. God is involved in the life of that person 99% and he is inviting you and he's inviting me to step in in the 1% in that one moment to either serve or listen with care or to bless or to invite them over to eat together, whatever it is, in that one moment, that 1% opportunity, we step in and we join God where he is. And when we join God where he is, he then makes all the difference in that person's life. And so you and I can be very strategic about this. We can think that the whole thing is dependent upon our effort. And then it becomes this burden. And then what happens is we walk away from the responsibility and we don't engage in it at all because we feel like it's all on us. But sharing our faith, is really all on God. We just step in where He's asked us to step in. We just look for the moment that He invites us to step into. And so this first point we took, looked at two weeks ago, and that is that sharing our faith is really just joining God. Sharing our faith is really just joining God, where He's already at work, where He's already moving in the life of other people. We just see it, and then we step into it with one of those kind of four priorities of blessing, all right? Now, the second thing I want you to think about for today is this. Unshared blessing really breeds entitlement. We saw this in Genesis chapter 12 as Abraham receives the call to go and follow God, and then it's credited to him as righteousness, and he does so out of a blessing that God gives him to be a blessing to the world and to other nations. And then we saw two weeks ago how that sort of wells up within the Jewish nation and becomes a source of pride, and all of a sudden, the blessing becomes entitlement. So when, when blessing is given to us and it's unshared, we don't share it, we hold on to it, we hoard it, we pocket it for ourselves, it breeds entitlement. Then we start to think we deserved it. We start to think it's ours. And this works with our financial life. It works with our relationships. It works with anything that you and I have been given. If we hoard it and we hold on to it, we start to think that it's actually ours to hold on to. And so how does this relate to sharing our faith? Well, you've been given the good news. There is nothing more precious that you have received 
than the message of who Jesus is in our lives, the freedom of knowing who God is in your life. That is a blessing somebody shared with you, somebody stepped in in that 1% moment, God did most of the work, and God revealed to you, your Heavenly Father revealed to you the great passion and love He has for you. And He released you into the world to live a life in a totally different way, making different choices than you made before. And all of a sudden there's joy and there's peace and there's all these things that enter into our lives as blessings. And those blessings then, if we hold on to them, we, think we, we start to think that we're entitled to them. The good news was never meant to be hoarded. Because when the good news, just follow with me for a second, I'm going to make some social commentary here. When the good news gets hoarded, Christians begin to think that they've earned something that nobody else has. I'm going to say that one more time, but in a different way. When the good news gets hoarded to the place of entitlement, the church starts to think that it is better than other people. Let me say it even a different way. When the good news gets held onto and it doesn't get shared, the people who have it tend to think they're better than the ones who don't. And what happens is then judgment starts to come. And so today, if you are frustrated with the culture around you, I wonder if it's because you've hold on to blessing of the good news rather than sharing it with other people. You see, I think, I think the problem with the church in America is that we have hoarded the good news for so long for ourselves that we start to think it's only for us. That we're the privileged few who have it. And the rest of them are just kind of in the dark. And why don't they get it? And I think this grieves the heart of God. I think we've got to rediscover as a church what it means to share our faith, what it means to have something that is meant to be shared rather than hoarded. Okay? So let's jump into this. How, do, how is it that we should share our story? We're going to take a look at it in Mark chapter 5, and we learn that there's this man that, is, that Jesus comes across. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says that they, the disciples and Jesus, get into a boat and they go across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And here's what happens. As soon as they step out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs. Now, what kinds of living things come from tombs? Zombies, right? No. The things that come from tombs are dead things, right? So here comes this man. He is residing in the tombs. He's living out in the graveyard. He has set up home where there is no living thing. Death has now entered the presence of the disciples. This person is dead. He's walking around, but he's dead. And he comes from the tombs to meet him. As you get this picture, the disciples step out, and here comes this man out of the tombs to meet them. It's a very interesting story. Continuing, verse 3, This man lived, he lived, he resided in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. So we get this idea that here comes this, it's kind of a creepy story, right? Here comes this guy out of the tombs, and nobody can chain him up. He must have some superhuman strength. He's got some ability that most humans don't. He breaks free, and he goes back to the tombs, and they try to bring him back to where other people live, and they chain him up, and it doesn't seem to work. He can break through the chains, and he goes back to live in the tombs. This is kind of an interesting story. It's like a really powerful story. Next verse, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and he broke the irons on his feet. No one, no one in his community, nobody in his family, nobody in his neighborhood, nobody at work, 
Nobody uh, in the religious institutions around him, nobody, no one, was strong enough to subdue him. No one had the answer. No one in the community, as much as they planned and mustered an effort, could in some way solve this man's debilitating condition. He wreaked havoc across this area. Nobody in all of the wisdom and all the power in all of (laughs) the militaristic forces that existed could subdue this man. He was on his own, unleashed on the world. His family members probably looked at him and wondered where their loved one had gone. They probably grieved his absence. They probably prayed every day that some God out there would somehow release this man from what was going on. That they could maybe capture him, at least hold him in a place so that they could at least visit whatever remained of their loved one. This son, this daughter, I mean this son, this brother, this father, whoever he is. But nobody's strong enough to subdue him. He's completely powerful in this region. Moving on. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out. And he'd cut himself with stones. So he'd engage in this behavior that nobody could understand. Nobody could silence him. We get the picture that not only is he tortured relationally because of the separation that's going on, but he's, he's being tortured physically as well. There's this crying out, this, this nonverbal plea happening from him. It's this guttural cry. And then the physical uh, maiming of his body as he cuts himself. And again, this is a, somebody's son. This is somebody's brother, somebody's father. And they're watching him totally destroy himself. The embarrassment and shame of the village around as they watch this condition happen to this man. And nobody can free him. Nobody can stop him from doing it. Maybe they chained him up, not so much because he wreaked havoc in their neighborhood, but, but they were just trying to keep him from harming himself. Maybe they chained him up just to keep him from cutting himself in a place that that would prove fatal. And and just hoping to keep him alive because maybe one day the answer would come. Maybe maybe a doctor would come through town. Maybe a solution would happen. Maybe maybe the condition would just wear off. And so he cuts himself with stones and people just don't know what to do with it all. Continuing, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees. And so what we get here is this picture of a person who cannot be subdued by the community, who cannot be cured by any doctor, for whom there is no solution. And yet, when he sees Jesus, he comes into full submission. This man that seemed to bow to no one, all of a sudden bows to one man. All of a sudden, it seems that a person who has no respect or no ability to submit to any power that is around him, is suddenly calm. And in full submission to this man who hasn't yet said a word. Something powerful is going on in this story. Jesus seems to be the kind of man that is unlike any other man that has ever stepped foot in this village. He falls on his knees in front of Jesus. You get this picture. People around watching this must have just been astounded at this picture. Continuing, he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me? What do you want? with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. In God's name, don't torture me. We have no clue who's speaking. Is, this, is it this man speaking? Is, is there, somebody, is there some, something else, some other essence in him that is speaking these words? 
what, what has caused him to come into full submission and yet say in his, his words, not only through his physical posture, but through his, his verbal language, what is it that causes him to say, this person has power over me? There's something going on here, continuing, for Jesus had said to him, come out. And now we find that Jesus has actually spoken some words, and when God speaks, things happen. Let there be light, and there was. When God speaks, things move in the physical universe. And Jesus says, come out. And he screams, don't torture me. Something powerful is happening here. He says, come out of this man, you impure spirit. And now we as the reader, the bystander, are suddenly let in on the story. And that is that this man isn't within his right mind, but he, he's actually possessed with some sort of evil force that has taken a hold of him and taken over his entire life. To the point at which he can't even direct his own uh, God-given will. His mind, his heart, his desire, every controlling function he has has been completely taken over by another being. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And you might think that Jesus is asking the man what his name is, but it is not the man who speaks, but the spirit within him. And so we get an answer from this spirit living within him. And he says, my name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. And so now the readers let in on the fact that this man isn't tortured by just one spirit, but it seems that a whole legion of spirits have entered this man and have taken over his life. That somehow he, he doesn't, he's not even consciously aware of what even is going on. This is, like, this is like the worst case of death anybody could imagine because the loved one is still there, heart beating, uh, physiological functions going, but no right mind at all. This is a spiritual death in the midst of a physical life. This is spiritual darkness in the midst of a, of a life that continues to beat on and move on. And he begged Jesus again. He begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. And so we hear from this spirit, this evil spirit, that, that, uh, these evil spirits that, that are obviously not in alignment with God's spirit, beginning to confess that this man standing in front of them has more power over all of them than anyone they had ever seen. And these spirits are beginning to testify to who Jesus is to everyone else around when they seem clueless. And continuing, as we finish this story up, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus. We, kind, we, we see all kinds of begging going on, don't we? We see all kinds of begging because we see all kinds of power. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And for whatever reason, I, I don't know, it's part of a confusing piece of the story because I, I wonder why, why Jesus just doesn't like say, no, you can't do that, into the abyss with you. But, but in some way, Jesus like accommodates this request, and I don't understand why. But we find here in the next verse that he gave them permission. And what, what the re writer is saying to us is that, that Jesus had power to give permission or to take it away. And for whatever reason in this moment, Jesus, he grants permission. He gives them permission. And then impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. 
I, I, don't know, I don't really know what's going on here. I, I don't know that I can fully explain it, but I, think, but I think an insight into it is that in some way, Jesus' heart for this man is so much overriding the punishment the evil spirits deserve. That, that his concern for this single human being is so great in that moment that instead of these demons who could have potentially destroyed this man's biological life in exiting are given permission so that his biological life might be spared in that moment. This is how passionate Jesus is for his creation. That one man's physical, biological life, as limited as it might be, is more important to him than the justice of a legion of demons. That's how passionate he is for you and for me. That's how concerned he is for you and for me. This is how concerned he is for your loved one who has yet to come and bow. Continuing with the story, the herd about 2,000 in number. Just imagine that for a minute. 2,000 pigs. I don't even want to imagine one let alone 2,000 pigs in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. I, I, I don't know what's going on. The writer hasn't said. I don't want to sort of, I hate jumping in and, and, and putting more into the story that's there, but I wonder if there's one spirit for every pig. I mean, that's how grave this concern was. Now, if you're one of the shepherds of these pigs standing around or you were the pig's owner, you're probably none too happy at this point, are you? You've lost your entire inventory. And so here's what we find as the story continues. Those tending the pigs ran off and they reported this in the town and countryside. And I don't think it was good news. I don't think it was, hey, listen, this man whose life is completely valuable to his family and community is now spared, but hey, we lost 2,000 pigs. That's the bad news. I think it was more, we just lost our entire inventory. And I think there's some some hints in the text for this as we go on. But those tending the pigs, they run off and they reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. Well, of course you would. When 2,000 pigs run off a cliff, that's quite a sight. And so they come out to find out what's going on. They're, they're curious about what's happening. Continuing, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, which they had never seen before, and they were afraid. They were afraid. They weren't excited. Like, there wasn't a party going on that, hey, listen, look what happened to this man. He was in it, wasn't in his right mind. Now he is. This is such good news. They were afraid. They feared for themselves. I, I wonder if the owner was among them and so those that were tending the pigs, and they're not but a little upset. Because I tell you, if your job was to tend 2,000 pigs, first of all, it was more than one person doing that. We don't have an indication of number. But to, but to corral 2,000 pigs, there, there's a crew out there doing this. And they just got pink slips. And the owner has just lost an entire inventory. This community is not too happy. And you know why? Because this community values the lives of 2,000 pigs more than they value the dignity of one human life. This is not too far, far-fetched even in our own culture, is it? But not Jesus. No, not Jesus. Jesus values that one human life more than he values the lives of 2,000 pigs. 
And so what happens here, and here, here's what's interesting, okay, this is part of the story, it's so interesting, here's what happens, I'm just setting this all up for us to move into. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened, so those tending the pigs and they, maybe just some bystanders saw what happened, and they told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. You see, there, in this story, in this reporting, it's, it's equally valuable to know what happened to the pigs as it, as it is what happened to the man. You see, there isn't good news here where, hey, look, this man was cured. That's the wonderful thing. There's the news that this man was cured, but look what happened over here. And so they tell that part as well. Continuing, then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Not because they were appreciative of what he had done, but because they were afraid and they didn't want him to run off their herds of pigs too. They were wondering if their goats and their horses were next. They were wondering if the cattle were going to wake up the next morning and the cattle were all dead. And so here is a group of people who are completely unappreciative of the full restoration of this human being back to his dignity. They don't agree with Jesus' values that this man's life is more important than any livestock out there that they could own or any money they would barter with through it. And so they ask Jesus to leave. This isn't good news to this region. You don't ask good news to leave, you ask bad news to leave. And you see, this region began to understand Jesus as bad news. But there's one person in the story for whom this is good news. Let's continue with our story. Good thing it doesn't end there. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And now this man is begging, but he's begging in his right mind. For the first time we are introduced to the man begging, but it's the man begging, not the spirits begging. For the first time in this man's uh, experience, he is free to choose something of his own volition without something choosing it for him. For the first time, human dignity and free will has been restored to this man. And he begs Jesus, I want to go with you. Here's the problem for us. Because our story may look different, but it's all the same. We were once choosing things that we shouldn't have chosen. We were once living in the region of death. We were once overpowered by something we couldn't control, sin. We once were taken captive by something that we could not chain up or control, our own brokenness. And we came to a living understanding of who Jesus is and He removed from us our sin and He sent it away. And out of that experience, you and I have stepped into the freedom this man enjoyed this day. We've been blessed. And now that you and I, we walk in truth, and have been freed from the power of sin over our lives, we are now free to either hoard it or to give it away. But here's the problem for us as Christians. We naturally are pulled to enjoy the good news like this man and never share the good news. You see, the man begs to go with Jesus. He begs to join church. I want to join church. You're my pastor, Jesus. 
I want to go with the disciples and I want to be part of the believing family. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be part of the believing family. But Jesus has a completely different mission for this man than just belonging. He wants this man more than to just belong. He wants to send. And so the problem for us as people of faith is the longer that we have walked in our faith, just understand the gravitational pull for you and me is to huddle together and enjoy the good news. And so we get into Bible studies, we get into small groups, we get into service teams, and we think that's the mission. And just like the man freed from his oppressor who wants to go and join church, you and I, if we are not careful, will huddle up and never, ever get in the game. We will be tempted to join what's going on over here to the detriment of the people we leave behind in our communities. Because we separate ourselves. He invites himself along to separate himself. And here's what Jesus says. It's so interesting. Here's what Jesus says in that very next verse. Jesus did not let him. This man begs for the first time, Jesus, let me go with you. And Jesus doesn't let him. And on the surface of it, if we were to stop the verse there, this seems like a very angry thing to do. A very disappointing thing to do. A very cruel thing to do for the man who just experienced freedom for the first time. He wants to join Jesus on his mission, but Jesus doesn't let him. Now, how many times did Jesus walk across the countryside and, hey, come join me, come follow me, come follow me? How many times do you hear him say that? Over and over again. But in this circumstance, he doesn't say, come follow me. He says, I won't let you. So interesting. So interesting. He doesn't let him, and here's why. here's, Here's why Mark says it. But said, go home to your own people. Go home to your own people. Don't come huddle with us. Go to your people and tell them how much, how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. Now let's just stop for a moment. This is ingenious of Jesus because Jesus is being run off Himself now. So how could he ever permeate the countryside with the good news of who Jesus is? How could he ever bring the kingdom of God to those people who have obviously shut a door to him entirely? He does so through one man. Through a man who experienced the kingdom of God for himself and can testify to it. Who can share his story of how much the Lord has done for him and how he has had mercy on you. And see, when you and I are invited to share our stories, we are invited to tell people how much the Lord has done for us and how He has had mercy on us. Let me bring up this next point for you. Belonging must never override sharing. You see, the problem is, is again, we huddle into groups and then we think, we think when we huddle together that we've just done church. And Jesus says, no, you've not just done church, you've done huddling. Church is the mission. 
And so belonging to your small group, belonging to your Bible study, belonging to this body of faith, belonging to your service teams are all great things and you need to do that. But it must never override. The mission of those groups is to share who Jesus is in the lives of other people. And we do so by sharing our story, just like this man is invited to share his story with his countrymen. Finally, Jesus wraps up with this. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people went from being afraid to being amazed. You see, if Jesus had gone into the Decapolis and said everything, they would have continued to be afraid. But because he sent this man on a mission, they went from being afraid to being amazed. So how is it that we are invited to share our stories? Three points. Leverage your past, share your encounter, and extend an invitation. It's as simple as that. Here's the way it was. Here's the way it became. Wouldn't you like that too? It's simple. It's easy. And the best part about it, nobody can argue with it. You have all the answers. The answers are your transformed life. Everything else is superfluous to that truth right there. And it seems as if you and I are invited to go to places that Jesus himself can't quite go. So people say to me, Pastor, why is it that if God could reveal himself, he doesn't just do it? And I think in this story we get our answer. Why he chooses to use us. 